A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. From Kante Hondo Mixtape by Rowan Evans Orange Blossom He must record the light in columns over the epitome Atrium of a lake Death of Lorca In the diminishing acoustic, white cracked walls of the mission courtyard Full breaths over the mountain Half-breaths, lain in heat. Oranges. The acoustic, diminishing. His mouth. A sodden cloth in his mouth, ink and vinegar. Waking in white stations, sending into them, vows. Something he wouldn't imagine in other brickery. In other words... Hard, brown, Andalusia, olive, green, Andalusia. A second light in the gorge, dangerous little walk away. Ask him, is he thirsty? Yes, those are flamingos. The brown mare looks at the white egret if he could smile. For a moment, the tower is everything. Swifts above the innocence. Swifts, swifts, south-trending tower. Beauty overbore me, so much movement in it. If I had a voice of math, only he must record the light, only this orange blossom. Said the Virgin, said the Mudejar, this would be the spring of algebra. Rowan, where did this poem sequence come from? Okay, well, um... It's getting on for quite a few years ago, or maybe 10 years ago now, when this poem first came about. And um, I think it came about over over a number of years um, when I was lucky enough to be in Spain um, around Easter time, traveling with with my mum and some friends. Um, And we've been traveling down to the south of Spain, into the region of Andalusia. Um, And... Often when we've been making those trips and spending time in that part of the world, I like to read poetry mm. or writing that's associated yeah. with, with where I am. So I've been starting to look at Lorca, um, Federico García Lorca, the, the wonderful Spanish poet who was writing sort of between the 1920s and 30s until he was um, disappeared or murdered um, in, in the 1930s. 
so I was reading a lot of a lot of his texts, um, and this particular sequence I think began on the train journey down to Seville, um, and looking out the window, um, just at things that were going past. Mm-hmm. And I was also reading bits of Lorca and jotting down lines. Um, and I suppose the other the other thing to say is that um, I'd also been using Lorca's poems and Lorca's poems in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, but um, although I think I did, did I do GCSE? No, I, I did Spanish <laughs> briefly at secondary school. But I've been using um, various poems by Lorca as um, starting points for bits of translation or experimental translation. So trying to translate Spanish texts, only knowing a handful of Spanish, responding to the sounds of the words. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than the meaning and seeing where that took me. So that had been floating around for a while as well. Um, and this sequence became eventually the the core sequence in what would be a slightly longer work, Cante Hondo Mixtape is the name of the full sequence, um, which moves back and forth between some moments of, of um, text taken from translation of Lorca and sort of playful responses to to his poetry and and his life as well. Um, so I think that was all kind of bubbling away. Um, but this particular sequence began, I think, yeah, on that on that train journey and and with notebooks, just jotting things down in my notebooks while I was wandering around and looking at oranges and strange architecture. A bit like a Spanish version of the Whitson Weddings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And what was it about Lorca that you were responding to i mean what 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 was your sense of what he was he was like as a presence in your mind as you were writing this it's interesting so as with a lot of my writing um Lorca, in terms of this text forms one of several little nodes of association that were going on at the time um so i'd been introduced to Lorca by the wonderful poet Peter Gizzy, who was sort of mentoring me at the time. And he introduced me to Lorca via another poet, Jack Spicer, mm-hmm. who in the 1960s wrote this wonderful, strange lyric sequence called After Lorca. Um, and in that sequence, Jack Spicer um, has a dialogue with the ghost of the dead poet and writes lots of poems which pretend to all be translations of Lorca, some of which are, lots of which aren't and also letters um, from Lorca um, responding grumpily to Jack Spicer's interventions and attempts at translation. Hmm. Um, so that sort of put me onto this territory of a kind of playful idea of response or dialogue with, with a text or, or, or body of work um, or a dead poet. But I was also particularly drawn to this sequence, the, the, so the, the Lorca sequence that I'm kind of working with is called the Poema del Cante Hondo or Poem of the Cante Hondo or um, I think Cante Hondo means deep song Um, and it's a sequence that Lorca writes um, which are very interested in folk traditions, um, ballads, um, songs um, and their language is is quite minimal. they they are full of repetitions, very short lines, um, colours, and simple elements. Um, and I think, as a first of all, when I was trying to translate bits of the Spanish, they were very short lines and, and simpler words, which was sort of an easier task to start up start out with. 
Um, but it also, I think, appealed to my sensibility at the time when I was I was reading quite a lot of um, post-war American poetry. Um, people like George Oppen mm-hmm. might associate with the the objectivist school of writing. Um, again, often um, foregrounding or, or being drawn to more minimal or whittled down forms of writing or expression. And I found that in Lorca um, and and enjoyed sort of mapping that onto the, the things that I was seeing around me in that part of the world as well. So, yeah, um, as with lots of these things, a sort of hopping back and forth between um, Lorca in the 1930s, Jack Spicer in the 60s, Peter Gizzi now, um, and um, seeing what came up from it. And presumably the view from the train as well. Exactly, yeah. So um, it's so that the poem is is divided into these small sections or, or substanzas, and I think initially um, lots of those began as as literally just glimpses out the window, in the same way that um, a view from a train window will offer a, a sudden snapshot or framing, mm. um, which is then moved on from quite quickly. And I think that lent itself to, I was also working, I think, in a very small pocket notebook, um, which had small pages with, with, you know, not very wide margins. So that, again, lent itself to these quite small um, snapshots or, or moments of um, observation, um, which then became these very short lines of these single images, um, which sort of accumulate ac- across the sequence. And then there were when there were other things that, that that I was observing or thinking about later on, just looking back over the poems now, they could then be sort of fitted into this minimal form that had been established by the, the train window, as it were. So there are there are bits in this that aren't me looking out a train window anymore, but they've been put back into these small spaces that the, the train window observations allowed or the notes. In fact, the first one definitely isn't Orange Blossom. That's that's from the streets of Seville. Um, yeah, but I mean, we can talk about individual sections as we go on, if you like, because there's, there's lots of things bubbling away. I mean, so I, I guess one of the things I'm curious about right away is is how much of this, because it's a mixtape, which I guess maybe for the, the younger listeners, we sh- maybe we should explain what a mixtape is. Yeah, so um, so a mixtape, or um, I guess, is the you know the a- analog equivalent of a playlist, um, and it would be. I mean, even when I was growing up, we weren't really using tapes so much anymore. But the idea would be that you'd um, use a, a a double tape recorder to to find different tracks that you liked by different artists. Or my mum used to do it, recording things off the radio, off top of the pops yeah, yeah yeah and you'd create your own compilation albums of of um of different songs that you liked a bit like you know making a spotify playlist these days um but the idea of the mixtape and again this this particular poem is is sort of the, the core of a, a longer sequence um i suppose it was this, this idea of of playfully accumulating or moving between different moments different observations different sounds um different bits of sensory information and splicing them together uh, splicing them together and i think i liked particularly when you put the, the you know the phrase canti hondo the deep song mm. which is this quite grand declaration yeah. of um sort of a, a folk poetics i quite like the playfulness of putting that next to the idea of the mixtape which is also a, a folk form or a, a way of 
sharing songs and putting things together. Um, so they, that, that, that seemed to um, speak to the original in, in kind of a playful way. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's where it came from. Well, I like, I mean, this is a characteristic of your work I really like, that you, you will engage with some quite deep or classic or heavy text, however you want to, what adjective you want to use, high cultural stuff. Um, but then you will, you'll, you'll have a playful, irrelevant, low, maybe even pop culture reference like a mixtape. And certainly when you, your description of the mixtape, it reminded me of when I, because, you know, a little longer in the tooth than you, I can remember waiting, yeah. listening to the, uh, you know, the, the chart show on a Sunday night, waiting for the, the certain song to come on and hitting record when it did, because you would only hear it once and you had to capture it, you know, you, and you didn't want to get yeah. the DJ talking, but you wanted just the opening bars of the song. And that's how I would build up, you know, my first mixtapes. And, uh, you know, hearing you describe that process of being on the train and seeing all this stuff flashing past and capturing it on your notepad, maybe it's maybe it is quite a, an accurate description of that moment of, oh, I've got to get this now because it's gone otherwise. Yeah, I like that, the sort of the the suddenness of it or the, the flash. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's interesting if you... If you look at Locker's poems and and how they're gathered in in his sequence, lots of them are these these sudden shouts or or utterances. Um, there's there's a tradition in around Easter time in 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 the south of Spain and in Seville where we were, um, where they have these terrifying <laughs> processions through the streets, um, sort of um, reenacting or. Uh, uh, memorializing the, the events of, of Easter, the Passion, the Crucifixion. Mm. And you'd have these um, uh, these women singing from balconies. I, I think they may be referred to as setas, or I, I need to look up the exact word that mm-hmm. he uses, but um, these sudden flashes of emotion and song which kind of shoot out of buildings and are, and are, are being uttered. And there's lots of cries and o's in lots of the poems as well. Um, and I suppose thinking to often how... I mean, in, 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 in British writing as well, how folk material is gathered and put down, particularly when it's coming from an oral tradition, there'll be this idea of assembling or creating yeah. a mixtape quite yeah. quickly and then, and then shaping that to your own devices. So um, again, I, I suppose I, I quite like that, the idea of maybe sort of sampling bits of the Lorca poems as well. Um, uh, yeah, as you know, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in sound work as well and, and, and sort of using musical approaches to writing as well. So this idea of going around and um, recording the light, as I put it, but also, um, you know, uh, mixing in bits of these Lorca poems, which are themselves imperfect recordings of snapshots of folk melody that all seem to kind of fit together for me um, in the moment of, of pulling it together. Okay, so I must, I will include in the show notes at a mouthful of air.fm, I'll include a link maybe to your SoundCloud, Rowan, because you've got some really interesting musical and ambient um, work on there that I think would be really interesting for people to look at in the context of your poetry. Or to, yeah, sure, thank you. To listen to, rather. So, and, and this idea of, of you know, the coming back to the mixtape and mixing in so when you say he must record the light, presumably that's you seeing yourself. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So um, 
and I think it's maybe something to think about is how the how the eye functions in this poem or in, mm. in lots of my work. It's it's often quite fluid or will particularly when I'm engaging with other writers, will perhaps shift form or borrow from different positionings. So I think the the original he was um the friend I was traveling with was um was doing I think he was doing analog photography and he had this sort of light meter, mm. literally a, a, a device for measuring the light oh. intensity to set up the camera properly but i i so i just wrote down something about recording the light which i quite liked and the he then yes it, it i think it could be me at various points it could also be Lorca, right or, or yes some sort of invocation of Lorca. he becomes almost a bit a bit christ-like in the ink and vinegar section the cloth in his mouth absolutely and, and again is is when I read this, obviously I thought of Jesus and the the gall and vinegar on the cross, and the you know mm. you've got the stations, and then that made me think of the you know maybe the Christ-like sacrificial image, which is one image of Lorca. But then also you're saying that maybe this came directly from one of these processions around Easter. That you know that maybe that's what sparked it for you. Yeah, it's, that's interesting, and I. It's really yeah, it's really nice diving back in and and unpacking some of these lines because I've got so used to just reading this poem as it is, and yeah, the white stations that's quite interesting. Um, and I think uh, there's there's I think just being in that part of the world as well that that the texture of that particular brand of of, of Catholicism and Christianity mm-hmm. is is very surface level, and so the things like the innocence was. I think the name of a of a street, um, but I think probably refers to a biblical episode. Um, we have the Virgin, Virgin Mary appearing as well at the end. Um, and I think yes, the the ink and vinegar, sort of being transposed there to this idea of I don't know a, a mouth being stuffed full of, of, I don't know, text being generated or I'm not sure, but. Yeah, that that was definitely floating around in there. Um, I, I'm not I'm not personally religious or or of the Christian faith, but I have at various points been interested in in religious and other spiritual forms of language and how they make use of of repetition and, and certain symbolism as well. So I think that that was all um, certainly in there as well, and I was certainly um, porous to it being. Easter time in in Seville with these very intense um, displays going on, um, and reading Lorca's um, reaction to those as well. And coming back to the idea of the the mixtape, and you know, you know, obviously in preparation for talking to you about this, I had a look at Cante Hondor, and I noticed there was some, you know, so the orange blossom in the first uh, section that. Mm-hmm. occurs in the poems um s- several other images i was picking up from the the lock i mean is are any of these lines direct translations or is this more of just an impressionistic you walking around within the the world of Lorca and, and literally in the landscape yeah i think what's really nice is that i can't remember anymore i would have to <laughs> go back to some very old notebooks but i like you i was looking back over um the the Cante Hondo sequence by Locker today, and there are lots of little bits and pieces that I recognise, which may have had previous lives in translations or things I 
noted down things like the the olive green and the, mm, the colors yeah. hard brown um the oranges um and also just this the way that the poems at points repeat themselves we have this diminishing acoustic which which comes back phrased differently the the orange blossom that keeps reoccurring um i think I think it's likely that those were things that I translated or noted down and over time became integrated into what was eventually the fabric of this poem. Um, rather than a sort of direct translation, here it is, here's my version of, of X. Um, and I suppose that's where, again, this idea of the mixtape or um, a translation process that's slightly looser or more fluid comes in. Um, sampling or spending time with another text, another writer and allowing pieces elements to to shift over into into your own writing i find that very very rewarding or that's that's often where where texts come from for me so um yeah (laughs) i like that you spotted spotted some that maybe i hadn't remembered and this is something i remember so a few years ago i came to your class at the poetry school in bristol and one thing i remember was your fearlessness with languages that you don't speak and you were saying, no, you don't need to go and study. You know, you don't need to know the whole thing. Dive, dive in, engage with it, lift some of it, play with it. You know, this is very much a part of your your wider practice, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And so, um, strangely enough, I mean, it, with with these Lorca texts, it's slightly un- uncharacteristic in that I've tended to to work with with early medieval languages. Mm. So, uh, you know, pre pre eleventh century um texts and that that's the subject of my phd thesis as well so i, I work a lot with old english um mm-hmm. old norse as well um some bits of old irish um and um and other other strange languages and sects as well but um yes w- w- when i'm working with those texts i'm often interested in this position of of sort of only partial knowing or partial understanding and and the gray areas and understanding that can allow us to step outside of ourselves or provoke something into being or into writing that that was unexpected so the partial cognition that you get from working with a language you don't understand or only partially understand is very valuable in in creating that state i think or that that state of mind or, or receptivity um so so it, particularly if you've maybe you know done a handful of Spanish or French at school, you might look at a poet like Lorca or um, a French poet like Malamé, and find in there bits that you do understand, words that sound familiar but don't quite ring a bell, and that responding to those and allowing them to to move into your own writing can create some quite unexpected and, and interesting results. Um, so. Yeah, I think that's what was what was going on with the Spanish. But yeah, as you say, I'm, I'm much much more used to doing this with with the languages that literally aren't spoken anymore. So, um, mm. quote unquote, dead languages. And I think there's there's an extra freedom there um, in in sort of being able to to play with meaning or the change of meaning. Um, and, yeah, and I think you know, coming back, spending a bit more time again with your work this week, I think. Is it fair to say that you require something of that spirit of play and fearlessness from your reader as well? Because I mean, you don't give us many handrails to hold on to with a sequence like this, do you? Um, yeah, it depends. So I think I think I mean it's always the 
the question with 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 notes and how necessary they are. And mm. I'm thinking, what do I put in this uh, penguin version of this? I say responds to Federico Garcia Lorca's Parma del Cante Hondo and Jack Spicer's After Lorca. So I flag, <laughs> I yeah. flag some text there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've you know, this is obviously something that I, I think about a lot, and particularly when I'm working with texts that are very heavily embedded in in a previous and perhaps ancient text that might not be familiar to a reader and the the place that notes and introduction have in that context is i think will change and is often very important so for example my my chapbook um the last verses of bacan that came out with guillemot press a few years ago um that has a much fuller introduction sort of explaining the context of working with, with several old Irish poems and a, a glossary of, of terms at the back as well because um, there's, a, there's more of a linguistic density there mm-hmm. to, to, to those texts. I think with, with this particular poem, because at the surface level it, it has this minimalism or quietness, I, I don't feel that it's one that needs a great deal of intervention to be able to read it or hear it for the first time. I mean, that's what we're obviously doing now is, is is providing a bit of that intervention or context. But I would hope with a poem like this that it might have something in itself or a a, a music or, or stillness to it um, without anything else that would, would be interesting regardless of whether you'd, you know, followed up Locker or anything else. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, an ongoing process, I think, between different projects kind of working out the the happy, happy medium between um, offering enough for the reader to get a handhold, but not destroying a poem by completely over-explaining it and just giving a list of sources and then, um, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly, you know. And this, this is the reason why I always play, you know, the first thing you will always hear on the podcast is the poem and, you know, on the basis of exactly what you just said. Even if you don't get, all the the references and and you you're not entirely sure what's going on you should you should get the experience of the poem you know i think maybe you know when i first started reading poetry if if i'd come across something like this i would have been a bit more intimidated and anxious and oh my gosh you know am i not clever enough to work out what's going on at first glance but now you know so if anybody's feeling like that then that that that's a normal response if this is new to you but where I'm at now is I'm much more likely to just just go with the experience. It's like, you know, the first time you listen to a song, you don't necessarily need to have all the... You, you can't often, you can't even hear all the lyrics, let alone understand what they're all about, but you can get something from the song. Right, yeah, and I think and I think that, that link to song-making as well that we have in, in the lyric tradition of writing I think is valuable to to have in mind as well when approaching a text like this and... Um, and maybe more useful for for thinking about how to initially approach it or, or how you might want to experience it. Um, and I think often, I don't know, the, the, you might get sort of a bit hung up if you were looking for um, a narrative here in this particular text or or a, a, a storyline or a single development of a particular viewpoint. I think that's obviously not not what's being offered here, but perhaps more of a kind of ambience or movement around a, a space or a set of coordinates um which hopefully evoke something or, or give something to the senses absolutely i guess in the in the in the longer sequence that this is a a part of which 
sadly is <laughs> I think is sold out now from if a Leaf Falls <laughs> Press, but that that was in 2017. Um, there's some other surrounding poems which perhaps sort of fill out slightly more where this poem's coming from, but I don't know, I'm just thinking about it. Yeah, they, they speak a bit more from from me, from my position as a writer in, in relation to some of this stuff. Um, but they're also, again, I suppose, mo- most interested in this this playfulness or this idea of a, a broken dialogue mm. between this poem and, and, and something or somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would never have got, for instance, the, the train journey framework from this. But what I do get very strongly is that imagistic, you know, that they're so clear and so vivid. Um, You know, now you describe it, it is a a, a bit like the effect of being on a, you know, when you come off the train, there are maybe a few things that you see that really stay with you. But you've got, there's a wonderful economy of language to evoke each of these little vignettes. And the syntax always feels very considered and precise and suggestive with you i mean i'm curious how how close is this to the original notes that you took you know in other words what was the process to get from there to to the form it's in now yeah it's um i'm wondering where <laughs> where the notebooks are that have them in they're probably somewhere i don't know i'm just i'm just looking at the lines and reminding myself um i imagine they wouldn't be hugely dissimilar i think one of the things that obviously changes is lineation and things look very different between handwriting and um on a computer screen word processing so that's often been a bit of a watershed in terms of when i'm making poems or or writing things there will be the the notebook version and there will maybe be a on paper version and then once it reaches the computer and and starts to be lineated more precisely then it will slightly solidify and perhaps change in form and that's where I might start to make these smaller tweaks to moving lines around uh, moving words around so that the sort of cadence of a certain line falls in in the way that I want it to um but I, d- I don't think this text is is so far removed from from how it began um from memory but I suppose that another thing that I'm often interested in and, and I suppose I, I maybe take this from from what I learned with Peter Gizzi as well is being interested in sometimes playing against um, how a phrase first comes out or, or or a set of lines. So one of the things he would get us to do is if we if we were writing a poem or writing a bit of doing a bit of free writing would be to and I think I probably did this with you as well in the class um, would be to to read um, the lines backwards or in the wrong order. Oh yes, or yes, shift things I around. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and to just slightly estrange it from where it began and, and see if there's something that can be be adjusted or can can become something new. And that can sometimes um, apply to syntax as well, so just slightly rearranging the word order so that it sits just beyond how you first stated it or, or perhaps the more usual way of saying it. So I think an example of that would be um, sending into them vowels, um, why you know why put the verb yeah, that that verb um not verb <laughs> the now the collective now <laughs> sending vowels into them I guess or sending vowels mm, into white stations yeah. would be a more conventional way of saying it um so I think there may be a, a few examples of that where maybe I'd I'd have slightly rearranged the syntax from the original but they do have quite a a minimal notebook feel about them though even in the finished form. Mm. 
And for anybody listening, you know, the, the lineation's interesting there because you've got vowels on a separate line. So if you are listening to the audio version, I would encourage you to go and have a look at the text and, and see because Rowan's always very considered in the way he arranges the text on the page. And so to me, you really push the poem both ways because it's an experience to look at the layout of the poem on the page and take it in with the eye. But you're also very attuned to the auditory aspect of the poem, as, particularly as a musician as well. Could you say something about the relationship between the the text and, and the spoken poem? Sure. Um, and it's, and it's, I, I often remember coming back to this poem that it's a particularly nice one to read um, for that reason, because I was obviously thinking quite a lot about the the acoustic quality or, or the, the ways in which the lines play out in the ear. Um, I'm just looking over it again now, but and again, I think I was I was probably taking this from what Locke is doing in his sequence as well, where often he will quite consciously repeat a line or a phrase or even a single word several times. Um, so there are moments like that in this, in other brickery, in other words, hard brown Andalusia, olive green Andalusia. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, and perhaps the the repetitions of the oranges and these other elements that come back also have a I suppose a different quality when you hear it in that the poem seems to fold in on itself or repeat mm. these small motifs or, or melodic lines. Um, I think the other thing that really comes across when I read it and that I enjoy discovering in it is there's, there's quite a lot of space. There's color in space, I think. Yeah. And so really the, the, the line breaks perhaps more so in this poem than, than other things I've written really afford or invite um, moments of breath, full breaths over the mountain, half breaths, laying in heat. And so you'll probably, if you if you compare the the written text and the recording, you'll probably hear slash see me pausing quite a lot at at these moments of of pause or break. And we have these uh, markers, these forward dashes, which, which separate between the sections as well. Which again, I take quite a, a pause at. Um, so. Yeah, I think I think there is there is quite a quite a strong relationship here, particularly into what's going on with my breath and how the spaciousness of this text unfolds when I'm reading it, and that I hope comes across and that was sort of there in the the original experience of of being in this vast and very sun baked, um, vivid landscape with with these baked colours, these greens and browns and and oranges and reds. I suppose I'm talking in quite sort of like uh, almost painting terms now, but I, I think that that, that that translates into an auditory one as well. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true for me, Rowan. So I think this would be a good time for us to hear the poem again and to and to savour that colour and space in the landscape. So thank you, Rowan. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. It's been lovely chatting to you. From Kante Hondo Mixtape by Rowan Evans Orange Blossom He must record the light in columns over the epitome. Atrium of a lake 
Death of Lorca. In the diminishing acoustic, white cracked walls of the mission courtyard, full breaths over the mountain, half breaths laying in heat, oranges, the acoustic diminishing. His mouth, a sodden cloth in his mouth, ink and vinegar. Waking in white stations, sending into them vows. Something he wouldn't imagine in other brickery. In other words, hard, brown, Andalusia, olive, green, Andalusia. A second light in the gorge, dangerous little walk away. Ask him, is he thirsty? Yes, those are flamingos. The brown mare looks at the white egret, if he could smile. For a moment, the tower is everything. Swifts above the innocence. Swifts, swifts, south-trending tower. Beauty overbore me, so much movement in it. If I had a voice of math, only he must record the light. Only this orange blossom. Said the Virgin. Said the Mudejar. This would be the spring of algebra. From Cante Hondo Mixtape by Rowan Evans is from Penguin Modern Poets 7, These Hard and Shining Things. Rowan Evans is a poet, composer and sound artist. His most recent chapbook is The Last Verses of Beckon, Guillemot Press 2019, which won the Michael Marks Award for Poetry 2019. He received an Eric Gregory Award in 2015, and a selection of his work appears in Penguin Modern Poets 7, These Hard and Shining Things, Penguin 2018. Rowan is editor of Moot Press and artistic coordinator of the performance company Fen. He is currently undertaking practice-based PhD research in modern poetry and early medieval language at Royal Holloway, University of London. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at 
amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.